0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am so excited to be talking with Cy Montgomery and Matt Patterson about their incredible new book of Time and Turtles. You might remember Sai from uh, The Soul of an Octopus, How to Be a Good Creature, and so many more, literally so many more books for adults and children. And the pair have another book as well for children, The Book of Turtles. And so I am so excited to talk about this book because I love turtles.
1: (laughs) Oh, We're so pleased to be with you. And we feel
2: like almost everyone really loves turtles. Everyone loves turtles. Yeah, everyone has a turtle story.
0: Everyone does have a turtle story. I mean, they're one of those creatures that is so ubiquitous. I think anywhere you grow up, there are turtles. There are ponds. People get them as pets, as kids. They find them. I remember um, at carnivals, there used to be like turtles as prizes and things like that, which probably isn't so great for the turtles but i think as kids it's one of the first animals that really enraptures us and it can be such a great connection to nature so i think i have to ask to start the first question that seems probably pretty obvious but why turtles
2: Well, wow. why turtles well turtles are among the most varied and most beautiful animals i think on on the planet um, they've been around since they arose at the same time as the dinosaurs, over 200 million years ago. And If you went back 200 million years and you saw a turtle, you'd recognize that as a turtle because it looks you know, they look like our turtles today. They live in the ocean, they live in rainforests, they live in deserts. We think we know turtles, but they're surprising. They can, some can climb trees, some can sprint 15 miles an hour, um, they communicate with sound they they some have necks longer than their bodies some can pee through their mouths some breathe through through their their butts and (laughs) some have
1: have shells that glow in the dark i mean there's this common animal everyone knows
2: but we don't really know and they're all individuals too so turtles all have their own personality you know just like we do or cats do or dogs do
1: but i think that one reason that people just love turtles so much is that a turtle fits in a child's hand And they generally don't bite, they don't scurry, they don't slither. They seem to be carrying their little house on their back, although that is actually part of their body and they don't leave their house. And they also give us the gift of their patient, laser-like attention. Because when a turtle looks in your face, you have got that turtle's attention. And today, you know, we're so scattered in our lives and we're so busy and we're always doing five or six things. Turtles embody that patient focus that I think we hunger for.
0: I completely agree. I think my perspective on turtles really changed as I was reading because I didn't understand the vast depths of, of what they provide for an ecosystem, the varieties. I think I picture just a turtle in a pond and I love them and they're adorable, but I didn't really realize the scope of what they do for the communities, the ecosystems that they're in. It's really mind-blowing.
2: Yeah, they're really the foundation of, of many ecosystems. A lot of them are like gopher tortoises, are keystone species. So over 360 other animals completely depend on them to survive. Some turtles dis- are the only seed dispersers of certain plants. There's you know, even all the eggs and baby turtles that get eaten, all the energy goes back into that system. So there's they're really, really important. And if you don't want to swim in a sea
1: full of jellyfish up to your lips, you can thank sea turtles for that. However, a lot of times instead they're eating somebody's discarded plastic bag and gonna choke on it. But they're so important to our world. And beyond that, one of the things that I learned researching this book, which took three years to to live and research and illustrate and edit was that they have such distinctive personalities. And turtles, there are turtles who will run, run across the room to greet you. And they will, the very first day that we showed up to ask if we could volunteer at Turtle Rescue League, where much of the action takes place, these two ladies live in this suburban house. And at any time, they may have between 250 and a 1,000 turtles in their house who are being cured of diseases or healed from injuries or they were unwanted. Our first time there, we we step in the front door. And this turtle named Pizza Man comes stomping towards us, just absolutely focused on us. He comes right over. He stops right in front. And as obvious as a handshake or a hug, he gave us a greeting. He jerked his head to the side, put it back in the middle, jerked it to this side, then in the middle, looked right up into my face first, and then just like any good host or hostess, went on to meet the next guest, who was Matt. And he was even more excited about Matt because Matt was wearing flip-flops and his feet were very warm. And Pizza Man stood right on his feet to
0: perform that greeting. The understanding of these personalities in these creatures is so interesting and so different from what you expect. I mean, we all know most mammals, you can kind of tell what they're thinking or what they're feeling from what their face is doing, but yeah. reptiles don't offer that sort of same No, they they
2: can't thing. move their faces the same way. Yeah. That's a good that's a really good point.
0: But it's amazing how
1: well you can
2: feel it. Yeah. If you spend time with them. You you get to know him like like a uh, fire chief. The snapping turtle we're friends with. He's a snapping turtle, but he's so friendly and gentle, and you know he's he's all snapping turtles aren't these monsters? They're all different and different personalities. And he's he's a very unique individual.
1: Oh, he's such a great he's such
2: a great guy. <laughs> I
1: mean, this is a forty two pound snapper who's probably sixty. 60- 65 my he age he says he's
2: 65 because she's 65 well she wants to
1: <laughs> yeah and he's unmarried right
2: i mean he's he's really a heartthrob don't tell my husband but his tail's 14 inches long that's right and it sports 11 osteoderms <laughs> one of them is one inch tall
0: <laughs> i'm crazy about this turtle i'm just Sorry. so if there's any single uh, female f- snapping turtles out there, you were putting your, you know, this is his dating profile. You're putting yeah. that there. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: exactly. He's going to be getting fan letters.
1: Yeah, well, he might. You know, he really could get fan letters because what he overcame, he was hit by a car in 2018 and his back legs were paralyzed. His tail was paralyzed. His shell was cracked and bloodied. And he lived by a fire pond, which is why his name was Fire Chief. And all the firemen knew him. And they were brave enough to run into burning buildings to save people. But they were too scared to pick up a hurt snapping turtle. So they called Turtle Rescue League. And these two skinny ladies come out. and one they of them's blind. A, yeah, one of them's blind. They launched their kayak. By this time, he's used his working front legs to crawl back into his pond. And by the time we met him, the shell had healed. But his back, legs, and tail still needed strengthening. And it was our happy duty to help with his physical therapy.
0: It's so interesting that these turtles sort of become part of the communities as well. I mean, you've got Fire Chief, who the firefighters know, and there was another who was treated for fish hooks to the face, who lived in a suburban yeah, Zilla, area. Zilla.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tordzilla. He was. Uh, he lived in Marblehead, Mass, and and the whole time, uh, everyone knew him in, in the pond that he lived. Maybe maybe for a century, he was a really old turtle, and he was. He was hooked by a fish hook, and he was so beloved that his story made the local paper when he got injured. And he was a repeat offender. He was in TRL um, two years in a row. With fish hooks. With fish hooks, And when we released him, everyone came out, all the neighbors, they all wanted to welcome him home. I
0: love that. I love that connection that we can make to our own communities. And I think so often we get caught up in this idea of nature as this huge global thing, but it's happening right outside all of our doors. And the most important, you know, nature for us to be connected to is what's right next to us sometimes. And what's those animals that are in our communities and the habitats that they need that we're, you know, not known for taking good care of. But it's so heartwarming to sort of see that there are those communities who really love the animals that they have right next to them. You know, people really rally around
1: them. And one of the the other wonderful things that we got to do, and still do, is uh, volunteer at a nest protection group. It was an informal group of people led by
2: but it, retired... It was permitted by the state. It's, yeah, yeah,
1: permitted by the state. Um, we should make that clear, because there were five species of native turtles nesting here, three of whom were endangered. And so in many states, to touch a turtle nest, you really need to have a, yeah. a permit. But where are these turtles nesting? They were right in the back of this suburban development of sort of McMansions. And over here is a baseball field. And over there is a big asphalt parking lot. And over here is a bunch of porta-potties. And right in the midst of this, this miracle is happening. And hundreds of baby turtles hatch out in this piece of land that most people would just consider a vacant you know, a series of vacant lots.
2: And they, they've been doing this for for fifteen years. And so they've they've they they've hatched out hundreds or thousands upon thousands of, of healthy baby turtles. It's great to be yeah. able to
1: bring those babies to the river. We check the, the nests every day, um, several They're times.
2: Hatching season, yeah.
1: It's amazing to see the babies come boiling up out of this hole. And then you you kind of dig down a little bit and there's like Oh, there's four. No, there's five. No, there's eight. No, there's 10. Some, some of the nests will have, you know, 20 babies in there. It's amazing. It's amazing. And then you have these tiny infants who were in an egg minutes ago. They've never seen water. You put them in the water. It's the wisdom of the ancestors are telling them exactly what they need to do. And it's a wonderful moment to see those little babies swim off.
0: It's incredible. I mean, there's nothing more adorable than a baby turtle also. I mean, nothing. (laughs) I have to say that I'm also curious about how, I mean, I'm not curious about why you wrote this book, because it's so clear your passion and love for these animals and for conservation. But I wonder how it sort of came to be. How did you two start working together? And how did this book sort of come into being?
1: Well, we met at an art festival six years ago
0: yeah, Six or yeah.
1: Seven um, ago. i think so Oct- well it might have been soul came out in 2015 and i had read it and yeah, i emailed
2: you yeah but i was uh, away you were away and my assistant i think said so i emailed you me. again yeah. and and then we met in person at an art festival and i saw his
1: art and this guy is a turtle savant <sighs> he's his artwork as you know from seeing the book there have been pictures on facebook etc of his artwork with his hand in the picture and his hand looks fake but the artwork (laughs) looks like it's alive he is a amazing turtle artist and possibly one reason is because he knows almost every turtle personally who he paints and you don't just get like oh this is the field markings of the turtle you see that turtle's soul in
2: your paintings they are amazing Uh, thanks well when when we met we started doing We started doing turtley things. We we started kayaking and looking for turtles and talking about turtles and hiking and and then it it kind of developed from there. Yeah, I felt the book coming on. And at this time too,
1: you know, my last book that I'd spent years on was Soul of an Octopus, and in that book I had examined the mystery of consciousness, one of the two hard problems in philosophy. And between that book, which came out in twenty fifteen. In 2019, when we pitched this book, I turned 60 and started thinking about time. And that is thought to be the other hard problem in philosophy. What is time? Do we flow through it? Does it flow through us? Is it even real? What do we do with it? What? How do we experience it? Are there other kinds of time? And who better to uh, guide me on this journey, this exploration of time, the turtles, these ancient reptiles who live for so long and embody patience and wisdom and strength.
0: So the connection to time was so interesting as I was reading because you do connect it a lot to what we were all going through during the COVID pandemic and during all of these huge changes in our world, and our society and yet there are these creatures who have been here for so long and unchanged in so many ways and they live on a completely different timeline than we do
2: when we would be working and this is during the pandemic so the world was crazy and, and time was kind of standing still or all blending together we would slip into we call it turtle time and just spending time with them was focusing and relaxing and calming yeah and uh, it helped us so much yeah to have a hand
1: to a trl in in helping to mend a world that felt so broken made us able to handle things flying apart the one thing that gives you you know strength and joy and allows you to look at the future is
0: taking a hand in mending the world and so often i think now everything moves so fast i mean We spend so much time online, digitally, news headlines are constantly flying by, and yet the world is still here and it is still happening on its own pace, whether or not I think humans are ready or willing to accept that we are just here and the world is going to do what it's going to do no matter what. And being able to sort of look through the turtle's eyes, I guess, a little through this book to sort of understand the scope Of their world really changed, I think, how I feel about time. I mean, we're such a blip for so many of these turtles and for the species as a whole, but we've done so much to damage their existence in our very short time to sort of see these people reaching out and caring. I mean, from the people who work every day to rescue these turtles to, I'm struck by, there was a story in there of one skateboarder who kept calling back time and time again because he was just so worried about this one turtle. It's, it really makes you connect to that world around you.
2: Yeah.
1: And there's so it, much we can each do to help turtles. I mean, that's the other great thing.
2: Yeah. You don't have to be a, a researcher or a rehabber or the herpetologist to help turtles. There's, there's things everyone can do. You can cross them. In the direction
1: that they're going, not the direction they came from, because they had a plan. And if you found a pregnant woman hitchhiking to the hospital to give birth, would you take her back to her house? No, she would not like that.
2: Um (laughs) you can if there's an injured turtle in the road, you can call a rehabber. And each state has has rehabbers, wildlife rehabbers. And usually the the fish and wildlife have a website that has a list of them and and what they work with. Or even if you find a, a dead turtle, if it's in the spring and it's a female. It's a good chance that she was on her way to lay eggs, and they can take those eggs from her, even though she's dead, and incubate them and save the eggs.
0: So there's so much that you
1: can do. It's really oh, yeah. incredible. And conserve our wetlands and conserve nesting areas for turtles. Be aware that this patch of ground that you don't think of as being important is crucially important for this intimate, ancient ritual. It's like sacred ground. So let's give them that space to do that. And it's wonderful to know that just around us, these miracles are happening.
0: I was so struck by these people that you met that are so passionate and so intense and loving and and caring and have these perspectives on things. I mean, these people are almost turtles themselves in many ways. Like they are just part of this community so intensely was it so magical to get to work with all these people and to get to meet so many different people that love turtles
2: it was we did meet people that were, were turtles we we, we visited um, the turtle survival alliance they they're, they're a conservation group and they work all over the world and they have a center um, a breeding center called the turtle survival center and they have turtles there that are extinct in the wild and they have insurance assurance colonies. they are trying to breed them and eventually get them back into the wild. And we 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 got to to go there and, and and see the facilities, and we got to help out with some things too. And and those people are so dedicated. And one of them, Chris Chris Hagen, he he is a turtle. He totally is a <laughs> he's, turtle. He spins He's so smart about turtles, and and he he acts like a turtle though. He's, he does. He's so he, calm and yeah.
1: He's so patient. And he works all day taking care of hundreds of turtles. And what do you think he does at night? He goes home and takes care of his turtles. You can't get enough turtles.
2: <laughs> that's that's their life is turtles. And, you know, I mean, if you work with turtles, you have to be dedicated because they're going to outlive you. So you have to, you're in it for the long haul.
1: Yeah, as Matt knows, because we started this book and they
2: had
0: three turtles.
2: And I have 14. <laughs> Fourteen sounds like a lot, but it's not compared to some friends of mine. So right, that's right. Yeah.
0: That sounds like something people would only say in the community of like. Now I know fourteen turtles sounds like a lot, but I but it's promise not. you, it isn't.
2: <laughs> it's true. The, the turtle community, people who keep them, a lot of people have a lot of hundreds of turtles. I have fourteen, so I, I it sounds a lot to some people.
0: We'll see how many, if we check back in in a year, so we'll see how many you have by then.
2: (laughs) My wife is not thrilled about having more. uh, but But maybe I can bribe her. We'll see.
1: But turtles have now penetrated our house too. And on the podcast with us, although you can't see them, are three little baby blandings who, with a state permit, I am raising to release in the spring as head starting. I'm just thrilled that my husband has let me have these little guys with us just for the course of the winter and the beginning of the spring.
0: It sounds like a slippery slope that like everyone who gets a little involved, all of a sudden has turtle friends that they're keeping in their home and and rehabbing and all that. But I can only imagine. I mean, I think once you start to make those connections, it's just so hard to be like, okay, I'm going to step away now.
2: Well, a a lot of the, the rescues, um, they get injured turtles that are native turtles, and, and those ones you, you release back into the wild if they, if they make it, if they heal. But they also get um, non-native turtles, and you can't release those into the wild. So they need people who, you know, who are dedicated, know what they're doing, and research it to adopt them.
1: Now, turtles, turtles aren't hard to keep if you do exactly what they need, but you've got to know exactly
2: what different they need. Different turtles need different things. is You know, there's water turtles, land turtles, some are really dry Some are. Omnivorous. Yeah, some
1: some eat meat mainly not meat, but you know, they eat insects and, and fish. Yeah. Some eat mainly vegetation. Some need certain fungi, certain mushrooms.
0: Um, some so need e- a,
2: humidity, some need low right. humidity. So it really depends on the turtle. Right.
0: I remember growing up and seeing like soft shelled turtles and that those oh. are just like so yeah. wildly different. They almost don't even look like a turtle in some ways because mm-hmm. they they're just so different.
1: Those are the ones. Who softshell turtles can travel really rapidly, and there are some that can outrun
2: a ten-year-old in a hundred-yard dash. Fifteen, they can sprint on land for fifteen miles an hour. They are so not and, turtle-like, and even in the water, they're even faster. I mean, if you're in the water, and I've been on turtle surveys where we're, we're trying to catch turtles and, and tag them, you know, mark them, and record their their information. And they are really fast in the oh, water too. Oh my God!
1: So. Well, you you, you said, "Sigh, it's coming." Get well, That
2: him. was a that was a yeah that was a giant Asian river turtle. That <laughs> oh, my one
1: God. was. I was up to here in the water, and the water was. I didn't have know, a good grip. Totally, the color of like <laughs> cafe au You couldn't see anything. And all of a sudden, this them. thing. Damn! It was this huge turtle, but I couldn't see it. But you did get him.
2: I did. You imagine. got him.
1: Um, <laughs> this was at Turtle Survival Alliance. This is a Turtle Survival <laughs> Center, and they're raising these turtles up for the day that they can be released into the wild when it's safe for them to be in the wild. It's a great place.
0: It sounded so interesting. I was like trying to picture it in my head and it just is such a wild image. And the fact that these turtles face so many dangers and not just from conservation type things, but from black market like poaching and being sold for their meat and things, I I. I guess i didn't realize how no one no one realizes that it's
2: it's happening that they're they're poached for for a lot of reasons but one of one of the the biggest reasons is the illegal pet trade they're poached for pets and there's a whole crisis called the asian turtle crisis and even the turtles here in north america are now getting taken from the wild and poached you know right out from under our noses and shipped over to asia
1: and this is the reason that we actually changed the name of the town where the nesting grounds are, and we keep secret the location of the Turtle Survival Alliance, the center, and we really try to protect this stuff. This trade is so virulent and malignant, and it is often the very same people who are trafficking with human slaves, with guns, and with drugs. They also do wildlife trafficking. Governments don't take the wildlife trafficking that seriously, but they don't realize it's mixed up with all this other really horrible stuff and if we can shut down that trade we're gonna free a lot of people too
0: and i think just the the awareness of it is so small like you said i mean i think that when i was i was talking to people about this book after i read it and being like okay we got you know i mean save the turtles is like a a saying that i think people have really like bandied about a lot over the years but it's also kind of like no, but actually, like we we really need to save the turtles. Like-
2: yeah, there are a lot of people um, when they say save the turtles, they're thinking sea turtles because they think sea turtles are the ones that are endangered, and all the sea turtles are. But there's over three hundred and sixty species of turtles on the on the planet, and only seven of them are sea turtles. And sixty over sixty percent of turtles are in danger of extinction, and there's a handful that are already extinct in the wild. And all those ones are either land turtles or, or freshwater turtles. And so sea turtles do need help, but so do all the other turtles. And people probably don't realize that. That's right.
1: Well, we did get a chance to do a sea turtle rescue, we which did. was pretty awesome. That was, I mean, of all things, this was December. There was a huge snowstorm. Power was knocked out at your house. Everything
2: was covered. I left in my snow wife this- with no power to go look for sea turtles in December.
1: <laughs> I know. Going in a, in a to the, snowstorm. To the Cape, to the beach.
2: Cape Cod.
1: To look for reptiles in a snowstorm. It sounds crazy.
2: And we found five of them. That's we, right. Kemp's Ridley, some of the most endangered sea turtles in the world. And we had to, it was pitch black and it was windy and you could hear the waves. And it was an amazing experience. It was, magical. It was So fun. And But we had to drag these sea turtles. Well, and we it, had to drag them. I guess I did. And, uh, and my <laughs> ice fishing sled... 10 miles. <laughs> it was a long walk. But, but it was it, worth it for the turtles. What happens
1: to these sea turtles when, uh, you know, the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than any other body of water, and the the sea turtles don't realize, oh, it's it's starting to be time that I should migrate out into the rest of the Atlantic. And by the time they get there, the Atlantic is too cold. And because they're cold-blooded, they can't move. And they're just floating there like driftwood. So you wait for a storm to bring the turtles back up to the beach. And that's when you can save them. And we got five Kemps Ridleys that night, endangered sea turtles, who will definitely survive. And they went to the Wellfleet Audubon uh, Sanctuary Center first before going to New England Aquarium's Quincy facility. And those turtles, I'm sure, are fine now. Yeah.
0: It's so incredible. I mean, as I was reading along, I was like cheering as things are, you know, and <laughs> also being like, I don't know if I could move a sea turtle.
2: These ones were they weren't huge. They were juvenile, <laughs> I guess. They were, yeah, they were they were not like as big as they get. Yeah, or
1: something. Yeah. I mean, it was still like you just don't but pulling expect them. To pulling see
2: them, they, they they the weight added up after a while. Well, plus, you have <laughs> to put
1: all the seaweed into um, you know because you want to keep them warm, and so you were pulling easily fifty pounds for. 11 miles. <laughs> oh, this is really something. I said, let me help. Well, that didn't last very long. I, I no. could hardly move the thing.
0: <laughs> there are so many contraptions and devices that these turtle rescuers sort of make and create for themselves to to save these turtles or for medical. I mean, there's like turtles in boxes and wrapped up and a turtle in a pitcher so it doesn't flip over. A chutney tube. A chutney tube. Yeah. And there's, I was just so, I mean these especially the women at the the turtle rescue their passion and the way that they like create this entire universe for themselves just about saving these creatures it was so incredible to read because you get so invested in these in the lives of these turtles i mean the fact that they so many of them have names and i would flip back and forth and be like okay now is who who's going to be okay and who's i mean and there are some heartbreaking moments in this line of work but there are also some of the most miraculous moments
1: yeah the miracles just blew us away and i mean our favorite part of course was working with fire chief he had to have a custom wheelchair created for him because when he was hit by the car his his black his back legs and tail were injured and while we could walk around outside he could use his his uh, front and back legs um, outside indoors. When it got cold, his his feet couldn't his back feet anyway could not gain purchase on the floor. So they went through several iterations, but finally
2: came up with a, a wheelchair design that worked. And it was feedback from from a whole bunch of people helped to try to make this happen. That's right. It was yeah. it was pretty
1: sophisticated. Yeah. wheelchair it had casters on it like on a, like a an office chair and it, it had like a cross pattern with snappers you know their their belly shield their plastron is is kind of like a speedo <laughs> it's not like it's the modest Mayo that you see on painted turtles and so you know you you don't want to have like a a hard object that's going to be rubbing his arms and legs that are sticking out of the speedo. And we also had to make it so that he wouldn't run over his own tail, which was 14 inches long. <laughs> hey, how, how many osteos? 11.
2: <laughs> so just one weird. inch tall.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that image. I did learn so much more about snapping turtles than I, ha- I mean, seeing what they look like underneath, like hold and doing like the different ways you can hold them. Now I do feel confident that if I ever encounter one, I will know how to engage with it in a safe way. And that is a little exciting because I think they're really cute. <laughs>
2: Oh, that's great. Really You'll yeah. be a
1: turtle and, hero.
2: They're, they're so <laughs> important too. I mean, they're 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 really everywhere. Um, they're in all the lakes, ponds, rivers, streams, and they're so important because they eat they eat dead things. They're like um the vultures of ponds. So
1: Imagine without, how icky your pond Yeah, would be without staff turtles, you'd be up
2: to your lips and dead fish. Right. That
1: would be disgusting. <laughs> no, and they're great. And they don't yeah. they, don't, they don't attack people ever. If they did, there'd be no people left.
0: I mean, there's a lot of snappers. There's
2: a lot there. of snapping turtles. But we just don't always see them. People don't see or know are there.
0: I think, I, I mean, there's just so many great stories from this book. And it's such a, a great book to be savored. Not only because that's, I think, how a turtle would read It's like slowly <sighs> and really making sure they get everything. But I, it's such a different way to look at time and to understand it in relation to ourselves and the lives we live. Especially in comparison to the soul of an octopus, which, in, as we unfortunately know, there's a very different lifespan between those sets of creatures. And I just think there's so much we can learn from turtles. And I, I don't know if I would have fully said that before I read this book, but now I can say it with confidence. Oh gosh,
1: that makes us feel that makes us feel great. It, it really did change my perception of time at, at, at the moment that I was entering this new life phase as an elder. And it's an exciting new life phase. But I'd always had this adversarial relationship with time, as so many of us do. We feel like it's something that is running out. We feel like um, we're always the red queen in, in Alice in Wonderland who's running so fast just to stay in place. You know, you'll never catch up. But if you run as fast as you can, maybe you won't fall behind, but you'll never get ahead. And that's a terrible feeling to have. And just at the moment in the pandemic when the lockdown just severed us from the usual mileposts in our lives, just nine to five in the office or school or church every Sunday or going to birthday parties and Christmas and Easter and Hanukkah and even funerals, all of those disappeared for us. But the turtles helped connect us to sacred time, to eternal time, to the seasons that renew us every year, that take nothing away from us, but accumulate like treasure. And Turtles gave me that at a moment in my life when I was ready to receive that wisdom.
0: I always wanna know from authors and illustrators, people who put these books together and pour so much of themselves into them, What surprised you the most while you were writing this? What's something that really just changed? I mean, you just talked about how your relationship with time changed, but I always want to know that thing that surprised you the most.
1: Boy, there so much was surprising to me because unlike Matt, you know, I I had turtles as as a little kid, but I hadn't made a life painting them and studying them. Just the incredible variety of turtles surprised me. But what also surprised me was how obvious their individual personalities could become and the ways in which they, despite not having a mobile face like ours full of muscles that, that show our emotion, how they can communicate with each other and with us. For instance, 50 species of turtles were tested to see if they could communicate vocally every single one of them did not necessarily at a range that we could hear but they could do so and if you're attentive you can tune in to those voices even if your ears cannot
2: hear them and i would say too i mean besides the the things like so some turtles that can sprint 15 miles an hour and have them go in the dark shelves and stuff like that. Working with the the rehabbers and, and seeing these these animals that were so injured and it would be a devastating injury. Nothing would survive. No other animal would survive from these injuries. But Alexia said, you know, and she's she's pretty much right. As long as their intestines aren't smeared all over the road, you might be able to save them. And so seeing some of the injuries some some of the turtles came back from. It was amazing. I mean, these are turtles that people would have written off as dead. And turtles, turtles are tough. They hang in there and they they want to live. They love their life just as much as we do. And sometimes it takes years to recover, but they just slowly move forward like they've been doing for 240 million years.
0: It's so incredible. I can't wait for people to read this, but who do you hope finds this book? Who, Who are your ideal readers? Wow. Well, uh, well lots
1: of lots of my my friends love animals and they will find that book but who I really hope manages to find the book and thanks to you maybe they will are people who don't think they want to read a book about a turtle I would like them maybe they want to explore time and they'll meet turtles along the way and I think if they meet those characters those characters will work their magic the human and the turtle
2: characters. Yeah, the turtle people will like the book, but it's it's people who don't realize they're turtle people who aren't turtle people yet. (laughs) We we want those people. And of course um Sylvester Stallone because he is cuff and link. That's (laughs) right. He has two turtles. (laughs) Yeah. From Rocky.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. I can't wait for people to get their hands on this book because it is so special and so magical and these turtles including Fire Chief, of course, at the top of the the list. I think there's just so much to learn, and I can't wait for people to expand what they know about these amazing animals and so much more, and all of the people who work with them so closely. So, Sai and Matt, thank you so much for being here with us today and for talking about this book of Time and Turtles is out now, and I really can't wait for people to read it. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am joined by Margaret Rinkle. You will remember Late Migrations and Graceland at Last, but today I am so excited because we get to talk about her incredible new book, The Comfort of Crows. Margaret, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: I'm so happy to be here, Jenna. Thank you for having me.
0: So this book, like we just talked about a little bit, is a little bit hard to describe. I know people have been throwing around the term literary devotional. There are 52 chapters that follow through the entire year of these musings, meditations on nature and life and how we all are interconnected. But I was hoping that we would start with you giving your sort of pitch of the book and how you've been describing it to people.
3: I've described it a lot of different ways because it has so many different facets. The term devotional, I think of it in the same sense that if you were, you know, if you, my grandmother subscribed to Guideposts magazine and they would send a little devotional once a month and it was just one page per day that you started the day with and it gave you something to think about. And, of course, those were all religious in nature, and, and this one isn't. But it is meant, I think, to be read in, in small doses. Um, but it's also it also kind of tells the story of our family life during uh, the pandemic, when two of my adult children returned home, and my father-in-law, who was in our care, passed away. So we had some life and death. Changes in our family life as well, and I was learning how those changes mimic and echo the changes in my yard and among the birds and the butterflies and the plants.
0: I think that this book. I mean, normally I tear through things and I like read something so quickly. I devour books, but I couldn't move more like slowly enough through this. I wish I could have read it one chapter a week for an entire year and just had that time to savor. I think next year I'm going to do a reread starting in, in in the beginning of the year because I can't wait to look for a bird on New Year's Day this year. Oh, isn't that a fun game? I have a feeling since I live in New York, it's going to be a pigeon, but I'm leaving the universe <laughs> room to surprise me.
3: Look higher. Look higher <laughs> than the windowsill and you might have better luck.
0: Yes. Because I don't know what a year that starts with a pigeon would would bring, but I think it's incredible to have these little pieces of time, these snippets to really dig in and savor a year in a way that I think so many people aren't used to these days. I just wonder how this idea came to you and how you decided this is sort of the next story you wanted to tell. I started thinking about it when I was still on book tour with Late
3: Migrations because by the end of the book tour the book had been out a couple of months by then and and a lot of times people who came to the signings the bookstore signings they had already read the book and they just wanted to meet me or they wanted me to sign their books or they wanted to get a present for somebody else and so many of them told me that that's how they read late migrations and i just started thinking about what it would be like to write a book that had that intention from the very beginning to contemplate beauty and change and connectivity, but also to really acknowledge and mourn how some of those changes have been very difficult to witness um, in this time of biodiversity loss and climate change.
0: I think having that sort of, Year in front of you really sets up the way that we look at nature, but we sort of take it for granted. I mean, I think we, especially for the speed that so many of us live at, we don't really remember all those little tiny things. I mean, when you were talking about all of the uh, different bugs at different times of the year or when different plants start to show up, I was really stopping and to think like, When was the last time I thought about any of those things? When was the last time any of that impacted me? And how do we look for that beauty when we're so trapped in the big, huge world that we live in rather than looking right outside for what's right there? It's so interesting to ponder, like, our worlds are really big, but they're also really small,
3: and there's a universality to it, you know. You are you are in June, going to be able to look at your window and or walk through the park and see a cardinal, and I'll be seeing a cardinal here too. And there's something very comforting about that, about standing beneath the same sun and and a, or beneath the same moon. But you know, you're right. I think we are so busy, and I think about the days when I was working full time and I had three young children and. My father got sick, and it was there's just a lot of things that have claims on our time and our attention. And it's very easy to begin to think about the natural world as just the backdrop that we're the protagonist of this story. And the natural world is just the landscape we walk through. But that's not been the usual way of the human connection to the natural world. That's just ours. You know, in the past, For almost all of human history, so much of our lives depended upon the changing seasons, the weather, being prepared for what might happen in the sky. And so it is just a matter, I think, of recognizing that our lives are the aberration, not not the norm. And once you start doing that, I think people begin to realize that it's very calming it's a it's a great antidote to the hurry and the bustle of our lives, the busyness and the and and all the things we worry about to just slow down and experience the world at the world's pace is very restorative. it's very peaceful it's it will make us feel
0: better absolutely. and I think before I get too. Deep into all the incredible themes and connections from this book. For a lot of people, I think they think they worry that in order to have sort of these contemplative practices or these moments of quietness, it, it takes this huge amount of time. But your book has these short, accessible essays or, you know, little pieces that take not very much time to read. They wouldn't take a lot of time out of a day. And yet, what they can offer and that rumination they can create is really something pretty big. And I wonder as you write them, do you sort of write them in order? Do you compile them later? I'm always a little interested on sort of the the form a a book like this would take as you write.
3: The nice thing about a book with this structure is that you don't have to figure out the structure of the book. You know, the the world goes from the first week of January to the last week of December every year. And so it's easy with that within that scaffolding it was I didn't write the essays in in order the ones that have to do with family life were very much in order as they unfolded in our lives that last year of the, of the you know of my children's being at home but the natural world I was started writing those probably 4 years ago and so but the third week of spring is the third week of spring from one year to the next so it was easy to see where it fit i had a lot more than would fit in this book because i do spend uh, i think i think i tell myself i'm not procrastinating when i'm looking out the window because but i take so much joy from looking out the window i'm not always out there in it a lot of times you can see and experience a lot more when the creatures you're watching can't see you, um, aren't aware that they're being watched. So, uh, you know, I would just write down things as I thought about them and, and then later tried to see if they fit, fit in the book.
0: I think one of my other favorite parts of reading this is the epigraphs you put on each chapter. I couldn't wait to see you pull from so many incredible and diverse and, you know, disparate sources that I couldn't wait to see what sort of the next little quote was going to be as I got to the next page.
3: That's spoken like a true reader.
0: (laughs) Those are those little things that it just really deepens the experience and helps connect so much where it was just like, oh yeah, this is a full experience. There's so much to sort of unwrap every time you turn a page. I wish I'd been able
3: to find, you know, I didn't start out thinking that there would be an epigraph on every piece, but I, I ended up with so many of them I, I wish I had been able to find one for every piece, but that's not how I found those epigraphs. It was more that as I was reading or thinking, I would remember something and then I would think, oh, that would be the perfect one for this piece. So there were some that nothing came to me like that.
0: I think that's also like the best way to do it is it's like in nature, it's like don't force anything when it's there, it's there. And when it works, it works. And sometimes it's not. And that's also just fine. Yes. Thank you. And I mean, also along with the, you know, these great titles you have for your different chapters for, and the great epigraphs, you have incredible artwork from your brother that is stunning. I mean, I only have a galley with the, like the black and white images. And still then I was like, this is so stunning. I just got my first, my
3: first hard copy. So I'll hold up an example this is the one about the names of flowers. I mean, stunning. It's just... The colors adds- are so beautiful. Yes, I'm really lucky that I have a a family member with that much talent and also that much
0: willingness to work with me.
3: <laughs> it's not always easy to work with your older sister.
0: <laughs> How does that collaboration process work? Do, does he read the chapters or do you give him like a snippet and he makes the art or is the art pre-made and it all just fits together? I wish it worked the last way you described (laughs) it, but that is not in
3: fact how it worked. No, he, my brother, Billy Wrinkle is a, he's always or very often worked from a text of some kind. It's usually a classic text. Um, He's working on a series right now um, from the book of hours, which is a medieval um, text. And then he, um, or, there are several, but that genre of, of text. And he did one whole series of, uh, a whole exhibition of artworks based on Henry David Thoreau's journals. So this is very much in the kind of work he does anyway. But I wrote the essays and then I tried to stay out of it. I really tried to stay out of it as much as I could because he's, kind of a genius and I don't need to tell him I don't and I'm not a visual genius of, or a genius of any kind. If he had a question about uh is this the kind of butterfly you're describing? I would answer those questions, but I didn't try to in any way shape or guide his work. I just said, I want the images to make everybody want to have a wild yard with flowers filled with bees and butterflies. And I want it to be wild and lush and extravagant and wonderful. And that's what he came up with.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, especially for people who have never sort of seen the wildlife exactly as you're describing it, or maybe they don't think they have, to have that not only just a a picture, you know, a photograph, but it's that artistic representation. It creates such a reverence for what, you're describing and what you're looking at. It's like a whole multimedia experience to encounter. Even though I did have to do some Googling because I'm naturally just too curious and I have (laughs) to know what every plant looks like as I was reading.
3: It's one of the, one of the downsides of writing a book as opposed to, you know, something online is that you can't embed links. You know, you can't, you can't include, um, so people can easily find something out. But there's, these are all very common backyard creatures and plants. It's not wilderness-based nature writing. So I think people will find most of it fairly familiar, even if, as you are, you live in a city most of the time, because so much of, like the, the birds that migrate through my yard migrate across the skies of New York City before they get here. So we aren't as separate, even in deeply urban areas, as we sometimes imagine we are.
0: And I think the sort of beauty in the mundane and the everyday is something that we miss so often. I know growing up in the suburbs, you think, okay, everyone has these really manicured lawns and these, you know, everything is really uniform and there's not, there's no space for these wild spaces. But when you really understand what joy that can bring to not only the, ecosystem around, but to the people around to have those connections to nature, it really opens up a different way of looking at how we interact with the world right outside our front doors. I think Sometimes people are, they're very
3: worried and they're very scared about how the climate is changing and they feel powerless to in any way address it, much less to help to solve it. And I think it. I hope it'll be reassuring to know that we aren't entirely powerless. We do have things we can do. If you live on a about somebody sent me a picture one time. It was so beautiful of a monarch butterfly on a potted plant of milkweed on like the sixth floor. I don't remember if it was the sixth, or the eighth, or the ninth floor of a of a an apartment building in downtown Atlanta. And wherever we are, we can plant a little garden that and and we can be careful to make sure the plants we put in the the garden will feed our wild neighbors you know that will be the host plants for their caterpillars or that will provide nectar um, that they need for food and when you plant it they really will come And, and it's fun to just go out there and see what new wild thing has arrived in your tiny little postage stamp of a wild garden.
0: And we are in such community with nature, even when we don't remember that we are or aren't able to sort of connect with it the way some people would like, or we all maybe should be. But this, we're sharing our space all the time. I mean, the fact that we'll see, you know, when I used to live in the suburbs, there'd be deer running through. And, you know, you have to remember that even though you're in the middle of a housing development, there are still deer and foxes and raccoons and things like that all together all at once. And not only are we in community with nature, but we're in community with other people as well. And I think sort of reconvening back towards that focus really helps us all connect with each other as well. Well,
3: we do belong to one another and they belong to us and we belong to them. And it's very easy to forget that, but they don't ever forget us. They're always watching. They know our patterns. The chipmunks that are gathering acorns that fall off our uh, oak tree onto the back deck, they know when our little dog goes to the bathroom in the morning. There are no chipmunks out there at 6.15 in the morning. But if I look out the door at 6, there they are. So they know our patterns. They learn our ways and they adjust accordingly. And it wouldn't take a whole lot of effort for us to adjust in ways that would make it easy for them or easier at
0: least. And I think something that people will really get from reading your work is the idea of slowing down. I think so often when I was reading, I was just reminded, oh, yeah, like those are the things that you can look for if you aren't racing. Those are the things that are always there. We just need to sort of slow down and look around.
3: The thing I like to think about are the people who are not on social media. And I do know some. and they. Have a lot more time than I have somehow. I think sometimes it's useful to remember that some of the ways we're giving our time aren't necessarily the ways we really want to. They've just become habit or they've become, we have this mis- misunderstanding of how necessary it is. And so when people say, I don't have time to look out the window, I don't have time to plant a little bed of zinnias, you know, it's like you can buy a envelope of zinnia seeds at the the grocery store in the springtime, and it'll take you one hour to dig out a hole big enough to plant them. It's not that as time-consuming as people think. And what I've found is that, for me at least, and and I hope it will be true for others, is that when you start down that road, it's a very self-reinforcing, positive experience. So pretty soon you want that zinnia bed to be more than just zinnias. You want to plant milkweed for the monarch caterpillars, or you want to plant passion vine for the Gulf fritillary caterpillars. And so it, 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 it does have it. My husband will tell you, it has a way of never ceasing to grow.
0: I think uh, that just makes me think that we're just so out of practice. So many of us are just out of practice with connecting with nature and ourselves in that way. There's so much self-reflection and growth that comes when you look outside that world you've created for yourself and at the world that's already there. And I think people are really craving it. They just don't quite know that first step. I think that a lot of people learn
3: that really in a, in a really firsthand way during the lockdowns of the early pandemic when so many people ordered and hung up a bird feeder outside their window, that we had a shortage of bird seed in this country that spring of 2020. Because once you've done it, you ju- it, you realize, oh, wow, I had no idea. This was all just right here. Um, and birds are a very easy sort of gateway drug to to becoming a backyard naturalist because they will come to feeders. And it's easy to see, you can, you know, hang them close enough to see them. You don't have to go looking around the tops of trees or hiking around in the woods. Not, not, well, some of them you would have to see that way, but, but there's plenty to see if you're just looking. And then once you start, it's very, like you said, it's very hard to go back because nobody wants to be, nobody wants a life that is only on a screen. I don't think, I know I'm old and I'm maybe out of fashion, but I cannot understand the appeal of those, um, those. Like VR goggles? Yes. Now, my children have them, but I just, you know, the idea that that world is in some way preferable to this magnificent planet just blows my mind. I don't get it.
0: I think That is just truly, there's something about the way that people are coming up now. And again, I don't want to sound like, oh, this, you know, uh, oh, young kids these days. But I do think it's also just that maybe they aren't shown how. They're growing up in a different world. There is all this climate anxiety. You know, there isn't the same connection as in before. We got the, there are need to just be resources to show young people or old people, any people how to reconnect again, and I think reading something like your work, whether it's you know in any of your books, there is this urge to reconnect and this urge to learn about ourselves through the natural world. I mean, it mimics so much of what we experience internally. You can watch it happen, mm-hmm. and. That might be spooky in some ways. It does have, you know, there's a lot of sad and hard moments in watching nature as well, but that's how we learn and grow.
3: I think it's true. And I think it's also something we share and we have in common. And, you know, I remember when my children were babies and I could take them to the park and strike up a conversation with any other parent, mom or dad, because having a young child is such a universal there's not that much that varies from household to household no matter you know the the ethnicity or the age or the geographic place that's a very universal experience is the just the exhaustion of new parenthood or the the joy and the pleasure of watching your child grow and develop and i think that the same thing is true of the birds and the flowers and the it doesn't matter in this very polarized age nobody wants to lose the butterflies nobody wants to live in a world without butterflies so it's a nice common ground to stand outside a flower bed and and point out to a ch- neighborhood child the names of the butterflies for example
0: and as i was reading and going through you have those moments where you know as a as an observer of nature that you cannot get more involved in certain ways than as an observer and my heart hurts just the same as when you know you try to save a baby bird and you're not able to or in those moments where you try to you have that urge to reach out and fix but the and i think people have those urges in their own lives too and it's kind of that helpless feeling of we want to fix all these things and we're not able and having those reminders, even from nature that sometimes the world just has to take its course and that's all we can do. Yeah. There's things we can
3: do and there are things we can't do. And neither one of them is always easy. You know, sometimes the things that we can do aren't necessarily convenient and something sometimes the things we can't do are very painful, but, um, but recognizing what we what is within our power and working to do those things, even if there are a million, million other things that we can't or shouldn't do, being able to do what we can do helps, I think. It helps us and, and it um, helps a little bit the world. And if we were all doing a little bit, it would make a big difference. I
0: think so much of Paying attention and recognizing those things. Like you were talking about with climate change, you mentioned in the book these, you know, it's not an alarming thing. It's not these, you know, alarm bells going off or these huge things, but we have to pay attention. You know, there are not as many songbirds as there used to be. There are not as many pollinators flying around as there used to be. The seasons don't feel quite the same and it's only going to continue. We can say time and time again, we have to pay attention. We have to pay attention. But Really, tuning into the spaces around each individual person what really affects you, that's how you're gonna notice what's happening, not just looking at charts and graphs and you know people saying things that don't connect with us as people.
3: and I think that people are really kind of in a position this summer taught us a lot um, about how m- more much more visible it is those changes are becoming. So the temperature. The um flooding, the fires, it's really the hurricanes. It's hard to ignore those things, but those aren't the only things that are happening. Like you said, it's also it's also that there are fewer birds and there are fewer bees and and um those are the the ways that we can participate. You know, I, I really probably can't do anything about flooding in in Africa, but I can put out a dish of water on really hot days so that the chipmunks and the squirrels, and of course the bird baths for the birds, but so everybody has
0: something to drink. Learning about those things and understanding those things, it helps it feel a little more manageable. It helps us really stop from these big, huge ideas that feel out of reach for most people and put it into a perspective of, oh, there is something I can do. And you sort of get that sigh of relief of like, I don't need to be in a huge global panic at every moment. I can do things that both help the world and help ourselves feel good and connected to what's around us.
3: We are, we, we keep coming back to that connection. And I think it's so true. It's, um, there's no way to put water out on it during drought for the birds without also Helping yourself. We're so connected. It gives us pleasure to help. It helps us to help. And that's just the first step. If that's the first step, maybe the next step is writing a letter to an elected official who's resistant to um, the idea of acting on the the on climate change, or maybe it's donating some funds to a nonprofit that's working to um to restore forests or protect waterways. There's a lo- there's so much that we can do. And there's a place for each one of us in that effort. Anyone who
0: listens to this will know that famously, I am afraid of birds. However, <laughs> so bird watching for me is a little bit of a different it's kind of It's not the gateway sport. drug for you then, huh, Jenna? <laughs> no, I would much rather spend my time with maybe a raccoon or a possum or any of those kind of furry friends, but birds make me a little nervous, but even then I'm thinking, you know, a bird feeder wouldn't be a terrible idea because I can get over that fear if I try.
3: It's right. It's all, it's not, you know, it's, there's a protective, protective layer of glass there for you. Um, I guess, you know, I don't, did you have a bad experience with birds?
0: You know, I don't really know. It's, it's, at this point, I'm too. It's I'm in too deep to sort of try and trace it back. I'm getting better. Pigeons have no, maybe it's pigeons specifically. They have no regard for people. They will yeah. invade your personal space in a way that is alarming. But and
3: uh, seagulls will also.
0: Oh yeah, that is they're kind of like rats with wings. But I like but rats most better. Most birds
3: they don't want to get anywhere near you. <laughs> they are. And- are more afraid of think of how big you are compared to to a warbler. It it's we're terrifying to them.
0: And and that's we're on the same page there. As they can stay over there, I'll stay yeah. over here, and we're all happy.
3: I think you're, you know, I think you might be right about the pigeons. You those, there are certain species of birds that have become very acclimated to our presence. And if you don't feel comfortable around them, that would be unnerving. I could see that.
0: You know, I get that everyone has those things in nature that, you know, you, in your book, you talk about everything from snakes to spiders to birds. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who are like, oh, that's not for me. And that's okay. We can still, there's still so much space. We've got a whole planet to, to exist with other creatures.
3: And that's the key word is the, is the existing with, if we can coexist, you don't have to love spiders. You don't have to love snakes, but there's no reason to hate them either because they have their place in the world as just as we have ours.
0: And they were here first and they have sort of this, you know, they set up this entire ecosystem for themselves that worked perfectly before we came in and sort of messed a lot of it up.
3: True, it's
0: their world and we're just in it. Yeah, and so hopefully we can find ways to move around them a little bit. I totally, I love the idea of people just abandoning whatever the idea of like a good lawn is and just recreating if they're in the desert, get rid of the grass. You know, if you're in a space where you can have just like lush wild growth, do that. I just think that one, it would look cooler. And two, think of all the opportunities we could have to sort of rebuild these ecosystems a little by little.
3: And we need to, you know, I think it's one of the problems is that it, it, for people who want to do these things, it's not always convenient to do it. Because if you're accustomed to buying your flowers in the springtime from a big box hardware store or from your local nursery, uh, you if you are determined to buy native plants, because the thing that we need to understand is that. You know these plants are are that that are not native to the U.S. They're beautiful. We love. I love Yoshino cherry trees. I love um, crepe myrtles. But they evolved for a different kind of butterfly and a different kind of bee. So if we want to feed our native pollinators and our native birds and mammals and reptiles and amphibians. We have to have the plants that they can make use of. And that's those plants aren't always easy to find, but it is very easy to walk up to the manager and say, do you have any purple coneflowers? Do you have any black cherry trees? And let them know what you want. So they we, we can help create a market. So we were, we're lucky here in Nashville, there are several native plant nurseries they, they aren't close by, but you can find them. But not everybody has time to drive 30 minutes to get to a native plant nursery, and not everybody has a native plant nursery. So helping the people who pr- provide our landscaping to know what we we would prefer, and that would, that would create a market that would then make it easier for those plants to be available. So it is going to need to be a, a group effort, I think.
0: But that's the kind of the exciting part of sort of getting out there and having your book come out and having people read it is you can sort of facilitate these conversations for what we can do individually, these sort of small steps we can take, which sort of leads me into who do you hope finds this book or who is your like perfect reader for this book? I
3: hope everybody finds it. (laughs) Of course, (laughs) that's terrible. (laughs) <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say, but I think, obviously, if you have a yard, if you live in a place with a little plot of ground, a book like this might make you think about new ways to think about your yard. But you don't have to have a yard to, like, I, you know, I I don't think that everybody has to have a half acre in suburbia to have something from, to get something from this book and to take from it something they can bring into the world themselves. and. And some of it is just the idea that we are part of the ecosystems we live within. And we are neighbors with each other and with our the wildlife that surrounds us. So if wherever you are, I think there is a place for you in this book. I hope so. I was trying to make it that way. And so, and I think that, If somebody could read it and realize, this isn't your homework. I'm not trying to give you a job. I'm trying to offer you a lifeline. I'm trying to say, this will make you happier. And it will make everything
0: better for everybody else, too. I love that. And I think that absolutely people will get that when they come to this work. Because as I was reading and going through not everything applied to me as something I'd already experienced or something that I had already known. But as a human person, all of those feelings, that was so recognizable. And it is so universal to have the grief and the joy and the curiosity that comes to experiencing nature. And I think people are really going to latch onto those human feelings And I think we miss sometimes now when we get so caught up in like our phones and the news. Well, thank you. That makes me feel a lot better (laughs) because it's, you know, it's not out
3: yet. And I don't know, you know, I still don't know. So the fact that you say that makes me feel very hopeful.
0: The place I want to end on is something I love asking people, but did anything surprise you while you were writing or did you learn anything about the world or, you know, your place in it that really stuck with you and is going to stay with you as you move forward. That's
3: such a common experience for me, Jenna. <laughs> it's very hard to because it's funny, it might be because the act of writing is also one of those things that slows a person down. It just takes longer whether you're writing out by longhand or whether you're typing than it to to express in words what you're thinking or what you're feeling. And that slowing down process, somehow the process of writing, I don't know if it's the slowing down or if it's the assigning of words to something that feels very chaotic in my mind, but I almost always come out of writing something feeling a little bit differently or a lot differently. The very first essay I wrote for my first book, um, Late Migrations, I wrote it in a, in a, fairly angry state of mind when i by the end i was feeling very forgiving and compassionate towards some people i was kind of angry with one thing i always say when i'm teaching writing workshops is don't worry about the audience really just write for yourself because that is the process itself will help you know what it is you're trying to say and that's very liberating i think especially to young writers So you don't have to have a plan from the very beginning. Let the writing itself teach you what you already know and don't know you know.
0: I love that. That's such great advice. And I think it applies to reading and writing at the same time is that slowing down that connection. Sometimes you don't end up the place that you thought you would when you started, but the journey to get there is going to be the best part. And I think the journey through The Comfort of Crows is going to be so life-changing for so many people. I know that personally, I will take so many things away from that book and into my life going forward. So, Margaret Wrinkle, thank you so much for joining us today on Poured Over, and thank you so much for writing The Comfort of Crows. Thank you so much
3: for having me, Jenna, and thank you for your words of reassurance. You've given me a lot of hope.
2: Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.